0: I'll invite you to open your Bibles up with me to Genesis chapter 6. We came through chapter 5, all those genealogies last week, even finished up chapter 4. So we talked about Cain's line, and then Seth's line, who would eventually bring Jesus Christ into the world, and now we've come to chapter 6, and the title is, Starting with verse one of chapter six in my Bible is called The Wickedness and Judgment of Man. And that's a pretty apt title of this passage. There is some sinister things going on in this passage, and we're going to try to unravel that. Now, for many of us, I know that we have heard what I'm going to be talking about this morning, and we've heard all of this information. It's kind of old hat for some of us, but. I know probably several have not heard what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I promise that if you haven't heard this view that I'll be discussing this morning, I sympathize with you. Because it wasn't until I came to college and I got plugged into a Bible teaching church, it was actually this one, that I came across this view that we're going to be discussing. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, you just don't see it coming. So we are going to attack it head on. And we make no apology for the text, but I do sympathize with you if this is the first time you're hearing it. Acts 17.11 is a great verse to live by. And it's essentially where Luke tells you, don't believe anything Cason says, but check it out for yourself and see if it's real. Acts 17, 11 says, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and he's speaking of the Bereans. In that, they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. There are two things that those Bereans did that made them more noble than the Thessalonicans. Yes, they searched the scriptures daily to find out if what Paul and Silas was teaching was in fact biblical. They did that, but there was another piece of that that we tend to skip by. But I think that the first part mentioned that we tend to skip by is even harder than the second part, searching the scriptures. And that is receiving the word with all readiness. And that readiness means forwardness of mind. You're ready to encounter what the text has for you. That's the most difficult part in my mind. We all come to the text with presuppositions, and it's on us to try to shed those in order to find what it's really saying. And it's so hard to do, but every one of us should be trying. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning is approach this text shedding our presuppositions to come to the truth of God's Word. There's a quote that I really liked, and it pertains quite well to this. It's, I've heard it attributed to Edmund Spencer, but I think that it's kind of not quite known exactly who said it first. But it says this, There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is condemnation before investigation. Judgment before investigation. Making your mind up before you even approach something. All right, let's get into it. So back in Genesis 3.15, God makes mention of two seeds or lines of descendants. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman refers to the messianic line and ultimately the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, would come from that messianic line, the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent refers to the genetic lineage of Satan. Just as it referred to the genetic lineage of Eve, refers to that of Satan. And ultimately, it points to the figure that we commonly refer to as the Antichrist. So from the time of this prophecy in Genesis 3.15, Satan knew that Christ would have to come from Eve's progeny. And he kicks off his assault on the seed of the woman by corrupting the firstborn son of Eve. We saw that in the story of Cain and Abel. And that firstborn seed of Eve killed the secondborn. Both of them, well, one was corrupted and one was killed. So I'm sure in Satan's mind, he thought, man, I've done it. The seed of the woman is no longer. I've triumphed. But God gave Eve another son, Seth. And we know that's eventually where Jesus would come from. So Satan had to pivot his plan. The first one didn't quite work out. So he then turned his attention to corrupting the human genome on earth, the genetics of man. The Messiah had to be human to atone for the sin of humans. Now that's, Satan knew this. And so he devised a plan to corrupt man's genetics so that a redeemer could not be born from them. And this brings us into Genesis 6 Let's read through the first 12 chap not 12 chapters, 12 <laughs> verses of this chapter and then we'll really dive into it. Chapter 6 verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And... You know, I, I didn't pick to, to have this passage this morning. You just happened to show up on the day when we're going through this. So you're not here by accident. That's really what I'm, I'm trying to say. There's a reason that we're all here and we're all approaching this together. So let's approach it with the readiness of mind, that forwardness of mind. And as the renowned Bible teacher Chuck Messler used to say, when you encounter something strange in the Bible, you better listen up because it's important. How true is that? You know, whenever we see anything strange, and there's a lot in the Old Testament, you come across (laughs) it, you question it, but you work through it and there's a treasure on the other side. So that's what we're trying to do this morning. So in an effort to stay organized this morning, I'm going to segment our discussion into three parts. There's going to be a grammatical discussion of Genesis 6. We're going to look at a scriptural discussion of Genesis 6, pulling in what other writers in the Bible say. Because if we take a position on the interpretation of this passage, then we should be able to confirm it elsewhere in scripture, right? And that's a that's something good that we should be able to do. And finally, we're going to have a historical discussion of what the historians of antiquity thought about Genesis 6 and even some more modern artifacts. And I've got a picture for you at the end. Pretty cool. So I think that hitting it from these three angles should build a strong case for what actually happened in the days of Noah. And speaking of the days of Noah, why should we even care what happened before the flood? Now, why should that even be a concern of ours? Well, really, because Jesus himself likened the days of Noah to the days of the coming of the Son of Man, his subsequent coming. So what we see before the flood is going to, in some way, line up with what we see before Christ returns. He says in Matthew 24, 37, and 38, And this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So there's a surprise element there. No doubt some evil involved, and we see plenty of it in the beginning of chapter six, those days are fast approaching. And we should be ready to confront what's in store for us. And I want to be clear as we're approaching this, I'm not saying that this is an issue of salvation, what we're going to talk about. You know, the angel view versus the sons of Seth, daughters of Cain view Not an issue of salvation, but that's not to say it's not important, because it is important. It determines how you answer difficult questions about the Bible and about the Old Testament specifically, like why did God send the flood? Why did God command the Israelites to wipe out entire civilizations as they were moving into the promised land? What was that all about? Because that's challenging for us to read and to really grasp hold of. One of these views that I'm going to present provides good explanation for both of those tough questions. This issue is important. It's even relevant to how you understand biblical prophecy, what's coming ahead So let's get into our grammatical discussion of this passage, and we're not going to really hit each verse with full force. I'm going to take the pieces that I need for this discussion, and then next week we'll back up and we'll hit them real good. So bear with me this morning. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now one way to look at this, and this is the way that's taught in most, and I only say most because there might be a couple that don't, seminaries. This view is taught in most seminaries. It's called the, the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain view it basically says that we can approach these sons of God as referring to the righteous line of Seth. And we can approach these daughters of men as referring to the evil descendants of Cain. If you don't look at the text, that's a very easy position to take. And it accords with all of what we've been taught and most people are happy taking that view they would hold to the idea that rather than remaining separate which by the way God never commanded them to do these two lines this line of Seth and the line of Cain intermarried and they bore this terrible offspring called the nephilim and you know that doesn't make sense to me because we see believers and unbelievers marrying all the time having kids and you know the nurseries of the churches the Sunday schools are not filled with giants so it's difficult for me to see how, how a believer and an unbeliever marrying and having kids is going to produce these giant offspring. So, and that's where I'm at. But nowhere in the Bible does it mention a righteous line of Seth. That's a completely made-up term. The line of Seth is the Messianic line, but... Jesus came from a genealogy of sinners. Rahab, the harlot, David, the adulterer, Abraham, the liar. Jesus comes from a line of sinners. Of course, he himself is not one. Seth and his sons were sinners, just like the rest of them. They had to come to God by way of a sacrifice, just like anyone else and they were all killed in the flood. And we'll talk about uh, writing from Josephus at the very end, and that talks about the line of Seth and how they actually went evil towards God. Verse 4 says, There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Now, if these sons of God were sons of Seth, And they died in the flood. How did these giants make a comeback after the flood? If that line of Seth, the daughters of Cain, were not there after the flood. Noah and his family were the only ones that got off the ark. The Bible specifically tells us that all flesh on the earth was destroyed. It doesn't line up to me. The text does also specify that we're talking about sons of God and daughters of men. And you can't really turn this into a comparison of family lineages. It's like, if the sons of Seth wanted so bad to marry the daughters of Cain, it makes me wonder if the daughters of Seth were just straight ugly. If they didn't want anything to do with them, so they had to go to these unbelievers, to this evil line of Cain, to pick out wives. is, Is that what we're saying? I, I don't know. And I've talked about this point I'm about to make kind of in pieces the last few weeks, so I won't belabor the point. But it's talking about sons of God. The term "sons of God" is a phrase that's used three other times in the Old Testament. They're all in Job: Job one six, Job two one, and Job thirty eight seven, and all three of those times it clearly refers to angelic beings. This phrase, and this specific variant of the phrase is Beneha Elohim, sons of God. Those are the only three other times that that variant of the phrase is used, but slightly different variants are used consistently of angels throughout the Old Testament. Every reference of the sons of God refer to a direct creation of God. You know, since we were born from our parents and through Adam, we would be considered sons of Adam when we're born. Now, well, that can change if you're born again then you become a direct creation of God and you are called in the new testament you're called sons of God children of God Adam is called a son of God in Luke 3:38 Adam was a direct creation of God angels are called sons of God many times in the scripture and they were all direct creations of God and lastly and of course, this is my favorite. John 1, 11 through 13 tells us that we can become sons of God through a rebirth in Christ. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in other words, when you receive Christ, you are reborn as a direct creation of God. And Paul doubles down on this idea in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And I'll let you dig in there if you so choose. There is not another instance in Scripture when the phrase sons of God talks about unregenerated men. It is always speaking of direct creations of God. So if we're to consistently apply this phrase, sons of God, in this passage, it would be referring to angels. That's exactly how it's translated in the Septuagint. And if you're not familiar, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And that was completed in about the third century before Christ. It is only a translation, okay? So it is limited in how we can take it. It's not the Hebrew text. It's not what the original authors, what Moses wrote down. It is a translation made by men, but it's very helpful linguistically. And we can approach the Septuagint with the intent to know what those Hebrew scholars, the third century before Christ, believed about the Hebrew text. So it is very useful for us. They had no reservations, these translators of the Septuagint, about translating sons of God as agalos, angels. They just translated it as angels. And that tells us what they believed about this passage. In verse 4, it says, there were giants on the earth in those days. The Hebrew word translated giants is Nephilim. And the Septuagint translates that as gigantes, or earthborn, is what that would mean in the Greek. And that's interesting, (coughs) because that's not really what the word Nephilim means. You know, we get our word giant from gigantes, the same root. Nephilim doesn't actually mean giant. Now, they were giants. Don't misunderstand me. They were creatures of enormous size. But the word Nephilim comes from the root nephal, which means to fall or to cast down. So in translating Nephilim as gigantes, those translators of the Septuagint are telling us who they believed these Nephilim to be, the giants. They knew they were the giants, and that was the consistent view of these scholars. And at that time, there was no other view. It was the angel view. That's all that they knew. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And this seems to add some violence to the situation. They just took whatever they wanted This is a violent and wicked time on the earth. Verse 3 And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days will be 120 years. There's a couple of ways that people try to look at this verse. Some take it to mean that man's lifespan is limited to 120 years after the flood. That can't be, because we have biblical records, you can look at Genesis 11, of people living much longer than 120 years after the flood. And even in modern history, there was a woman, a French woman, who just died in 1997 at the age of 122. So even in modern history, we have people living to these extraordinary lengths. What this verse is actually saying is that the judgment would come in 120 years. It would be 120 years after God spoke that, that he would send the flood. My spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So it does specify that there were giants on the earth after the flood. It says, in those days and also afterward. So these guys were walking around before the flood. They all died in the flood. That was the main purpose of the flood, was to wipe these Nephilim out. But they made a comeback after the flood. How did all of that happen? Well, if you take the Sethite view and these sons of God were men, that doesn't make sense because they perished in the flood. But if these entities, these sons of God, were fallen angels, of course they wouldn't be wiped out in the flood. The explanatory power that this angel view has far outweighs the explanatory value of the Sethite view. Now, whatever these sons of God were that caused this unholy offspring, they weren't killed in the flood because they continued these procreative activities after the flood. And that is exactly what seems to have happened. There was something called a second incursion. That's the technical term for it. And that just means that after the flood, these fallen angels kept doing what they did before the flood. They took human women, they procreated with them, and they bore giants to them. And there were no Nephilim on the ark, okay? There is a legend that that was the case. And if you've seen the movie, was it with Russell Crowe? Have you seen that movie? Grossly inaccurate. Okay. <laughs> So I haven't even seen it. I don't really want to see it. I heard it's bad. But there were no Nephilim on the ark. And there is this view that you'll see floating around that Noah, or one of the members of his family, carried Nephilim genes through the ark. That's unscriptural. Chapter 6, down in verse 9, it says that Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. His bloodline was untainted. He was a perfect man in his generations. Doesn't mean he's sinless. We do know that he was counted righteous, Hebrews 11. but He was not sinless. That word translated perfect is temim. It's the same word that's used in Exodus 12.5 when describing the condition of the Passover lamb as unblemished. And it always refers to physical blemishes, physical marks. It's also used throughout the law to describe this sacrificial lamb as being without blemish. Leviticus 1.3 is one of those instances. It speaks of a physical defect. And Noah is said to be without physical defect in his generations, in his bloodline. He was pure pure-blooded. You know, he wasn't a pure-blooded American, but he was pure-blooded. Nephilim genes didn't get through the flood on the ark, but it does seem that Satan's approach to using these Nephilim becomes a little bit more calculated, less sporadic after the flood. When God talks to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, he tells him, that his descendants will be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years. And later, God also promises Abraham that his descendants would come into possession of the land of Canaan, that promised land. So Satan knows that he has 400 years to lay down a minefield in that area of Canaan. And I believe that's why we see such a concentrated presence of these giants in Canaan. And that's all spelled out for us through Joshua and Deuteronomy. And it's all right there. We'll look at those in a second. So this kind of leads into seeing what the Bible says in other places about these giants. It's a good time to kind of transfer into our scriptural discussion. And if we take this angel view, then we would expect both the angels and their offspring to be mentioned in other places in the Bible. And we most certainly do see that. So if you come to Numbers 13, you'll see that it contains the account of those 12 spies that were sent into Canaan, and they return with a report of giants in the land. In verse 32 and 33, the spies say, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. This land devours its inhabitants. They were, to a large extent, cannibalistic. They ate humans and maybe ate each other. I don't know. These giants had such an appetite that they completely devoured the inhabitants of the land. And they would have had to in order to keep up with the demands of their huge bodies. They would go through so much energy in a day, just their basal metabolic rate, just to keep their heart pumping, blood going, an incredible amount of energy. Incredible. So this land literally devoured its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. And it's interesting to me that they specify that they were men of great stature, not women. There we saw the giants. And this is the same word that we discussed, Nephilim, translated giants. They also tell us that the Anakim, which was a tribe, they were descendants of Anak, they're giants. So the Anakim are giants. And he says that we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. This may not be such an exaggeration. You know, we tend to think that it's an exaggeration as we read through, but they may really have felt like grasshoppers as far beneath these guys as they would have been. And since we know that the Anakim were a tribe of giants, we can also look for references to the Anakim in the Bible. That'll tip us off to the presence of these giants. Deuteronomy 2.10 and 11 says that the Emim were giants like the Anakim. It says the Emim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. They were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites call them Emim. So here we have a similar type of wording, except there is a different word used in the Hebrew that's also translated giants. That word, they were also regarded as giants, is Rephaim. You might have heard of the term Rephaim as well. We'll see that used over and over. Deuteronomy 2 verses 20 and 21 also uses the word Rephaim this time to equate the stature of the Zamzumin with that of the Anakim. That was also regarded as a land of giants, Rephaim. Giants formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. So there are all these tribes of giants listed in Deuteronomy. And we can clearly make the distinction from the scripture itself, that these were, in fact, tribes of giants. And there's another provocative mention of one of these Rephaim. In Deuteronomy 3.11, it says, For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. There's Rephaim again. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead, Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length, and four cubits is its width, according to the standard cubit. Now, the Egyptian royal cubit was very likely the cubit that was used here. We know that Moses was learned in all the ways of the Egyptians. Stephen tells us that in Acts 7.22. This cubit, the Egyptian royal cubit, was about 20.6 inches. That would make this bed of King Og of Bashan about 15 and a half feet by six feet 10 inches. And you say, well, he was just a little man with a big ego, right? He just wanted to sleep in a big bed, but he didn't really need one that big. Fair point. But. This bed was made of iron, which suggests to me that it needed to support a lot of weight. It had to be structurally sound, not just comfy for a little man, right? But the most well known giant of the Bible is found in 1 Samuel 17. Everybody's heard of Goliath. He apparently had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And that's a strange detail to include. But this ends up being a common trait, the six fingers, six toes, of the giants that, were, that have actually been found in modern archaeology. We can see a lot of these accounts, and they end up having six fingers or six toes. And we'll talk more about the Native Americans in a second, but when the Native Americans would greet each other, they would hold up their hand and say, how? Why did they hold up their hand? Because they were terrified of the six-fingered people. It was a kind of check for them. How? You would check to make sure that you only had five fingers. Very interesting. Okay. In the Old Testament, we come across some difficult passages. Okay. Especially where God orders the destruction of all living things in certain areas. You know, men, women, children, animals. The livestock was to be killed. That's hard for us. For example, God says in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17, but of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. And at first glance, we look at this and we can't see the God of the New Testament, the loving, compassionate God. We can't see him in this passage at first glance. But if those societies that the Israelites were instructed to completely obliterate were so perverted to the point that they sought after this strange flesh, that's the term, biblical term that's used. And they procreated with fallen angels, bore giants to these women. That helps us make sense of why God would order them to be completely wiped out. The perversion was too great to let them influence other areas. And all of a sudden, things start to become clearer. Clearer. And that does sound like the God of the New Testament who hates evil and makes righteous judgments. God does not change. And it's much the same for the flood when we approach this idea of God flooding the entire earth, wiping out all flesh. If the state of the world was simply sinful, was wiping out every living thing really a necessary judgment? Because it's sinful today. The world is a sinful place and God's not wiping it out with a flood. If that's all that there was, you know, we seem to be missing something. We know that God's judgments are righteous and his ways are good. But it's hard for us to reconcile this type of judgment. But if Satan was trying to pollute the genetic code of man through a race of demonic human hybrids. Then it would make sense to restrict the genes of the human race to one family and then let them, who were pure, repopulate the earth. That makes a lot more sense. The explanatory power that the angel view possesses is much greater than the sons of Seth and daughters of Cain view. Deuteronomy 3.13 says that the land of Bashan, remember that's where King Og ruled, the big bed, that land of Bashan was called the land of Rephaim. Deuteronomy 3.13, all the region of Argob with all Bashan was called the land of the giants. So much of this perversion also took place in this area of Bashan. If you take a look at Psalm 22, you'll notice it's written as if Jesus is speaking in the first person as he's hanging on the cross. And he does actually say some of Psalm 22 while he's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's verse one. But you come to verses 12 and 13 that say, Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. If you look in the Gospels, there's no mention of bulls surrounding Jesus on the cross. This is a description of what's going on in the spiritual realm as Christ hangs on the cross. And if you've been in agriculture for any amount of time, you know exactly what the purpose of a bull is. Now, they're there for one reason. They sire the calves, right? That's their job. So it's interesting that these strong bulls of Bashan are referenced as bulls. We know they're not literal bulls. So why did he use that comparison? the reference to Bashan seems to tie these demonic entities to the Genesis 6 perversion, and referring to them as bulls seems to suggest that they've sired some of those giants. The incredibly powerful fallen angels who sired the Nephilim encircled Christ on the cross, their mouths gaping like a raging and roaring lion. What a picture that paints for us. The same guys who tried to pollute the bloodline back in Genesis 6 thought they had him again. They were encircling him on the cross. That's intense. Another question you might have is, well, why don't we see these giants today? It's a good question. And this is a good way to look at what the New Testament has to say about this issue because when we come to Second Peter two four, Peter is talking about the judgment of false teachers, and he compares their judgment to the judgment of quote the angels who sinned. Second Peter two four, he writes, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and he goes on and lists more examples and says, well, God is not going to forestall his judgment on these false teachers. That's the point he's making. But he throws this reference in to the angels who sinned. So at some point, God had actually chained up these fallen angels to await their judgment. It says God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And hell is how it's translated in the English. The Greek word is Tartarus, and that's the only time that it's used in the Bible. So there's a lot of mystery surrounding what this place really is, this Tartarus. It's a distinct word from other words that are used translated hell, So we want to pay attention to that. We're not sure exactly what this place is, but we can deduce from this verse that it acts as a type of prison for these evil spirits that are awaiting judgment. Now you say, well, how do we know that Peter is talking about the Genesis 6 angels who sinned and not some other angels who sinned? Also a good question. And there are a couple of good reasons that we can be quite certain that he's referring to the same angels from Genesis 6. One, he already wrote about them to the same audience, and he makes clear which angels he's referring to. Both of Peter's epistles were written to a general audience of early Christians. He wasn't writing to a specific church or something like that. It was for a general Christian audience. In 1 Peter, 3, 18 through 20, he writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might, something popped up on my computer, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Interesting reference to these angels. And I want to make a side note here. When it says that he preached to the spirits in prison, that word preached is not evangelizo, it's caruso. He did not Preached the gospel to those spirits, he proclaimed his victory to them. And we have good reason to believe that these spirits in prison were the angels who sinned. It says, He preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. Also, the word spirits should not be translated as souls, it is spirits. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited, here's your key, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. That's when this whole episode in Genesis 6 was taking place. It's when the ark was being built right before the flood. Peter clearly ties those spirits in prison, to the days of Noah. And he says that these were the spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Then in Second Peter, he refers back to those angels who sinned, evidently pointing to the same angels. The second reason we know that this is probably a reference to those same angels is because Jude also makes a reference to them. It seems that this angel view was the standard among New Testament writers, and it definitely was. Jude 6 reads, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That's Jude 6. There's something very telling in this verse it's easy to look over. Jude says that these angels did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. Abode is translated from Oketarian, the Greek meaning a habitation or a dwelling. They left their own habitation, their own dwelling. And the only other place that Oketarian is used in the Bible, is 2 Corinthians 5.2. And this is when Paul is talking about our resurrection bodies. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, Oikotarian, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. And he continues in verse 4, For we who are in this tent groan, talking about our mortal bodies, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So if Paul says that our resurrection body is the oiketarian, the dwelling that we aspire to, Jude could and probably was also using oiketarian to speak to the angel's Heavenly bodies. But the angels shed that dwelling, those heavenly bodies, in order to sin, in order to procreate with these human women. They left the domain, that's Archie, that God had assigned them and shed their heavenly body in rebellion. Sodom and Gomorrah suffered the same perversions, as this Genesis 6 episode, they also went after strange flesh. And in Jude 7, it says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. It's interesting that Jude also uses these angels in reference to the judgment of false teachers. That's sobering warning to anyone teaching. You know, we, we have to take great care. But that's just a side note. It says in verse 7 of Jude... And the cities around them in a similar manner to these. These is tutois. Tutois is a masculine word. And it points back to the only other masculine subject in this phrase, which is agalos, angels. It can't be referring to cities. It can't be referring to either Sodom or Gomorrah. It has to refer to the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. What was their sin? It tells us their sin. In like manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Heteros. Strange. Different. Not the same kind. Now the case against what I'm saying is usually made from Matthew 22:30. And this is where Jesus says that the angels of God in heaven neither marry nor are given in marriage. Okay so people will take this to mean that angels cannot procreate and so the angel view of Genesis 6 cannot be true. The only problem is that's not actually what Jesus was saying. In this passage in Matthew 22, the Sadducees had come to Jesus trying to trick him concerning the resurrection. And if you're not familiar, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, did not believe in angels. And that's why they were sad, you see. So these Sadducees gave Jesus an impossible scenario. You know, like your kids kind of play with scenarios with you, like, well, what if this happened? This is what they were doing. They gave him this scenario in which one woman had married seven of these brothers, one after another after the previous had died. And they asked Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? She didn't have kids by any of them. Whose wife will she be? And Jesus basically said, well, you guys are missing the point. He said, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Imagine if Jesus said that to you. Goodness. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. (laughs) For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. That's what he's saying in context. First of all, Jesus Says the angels of God. The angels who transgressed, who sinned, are certainly not of God. And he specifies in heaven. Those angels that left their domain, their proper habitation, they are not in heaven. And in order to sin, they had to leave that domain. And shed their abode. They left heaven where they should have stayed. And so the angels of God in heaven don't procreate. Now, I would be very careful in saying that they can't. You know, I I don't understand that much about them. I, I don't know what their capabilities really are outside of the scripture. But um I wouldn't put any limits, really, besides what's scriptural, on fallen angels. You know, These massively powerful beings who don't care what God thinks, who actively try to do things against God's will. I would hesitate to put limitations on them. Now, of course, we know very little about angels, but we do know they're powerful. And if we take the, the grammar of Genesis 6 and we take the verses and passages in other parts of the Bible, it really seems obvious to me about what is happening in Genesis 6. There's plenty of evidence for it. There's also historical evidence. And these giants have certainly made their mark on history as you'd expect, and the angel view was the standard way of interpreting Genesis 6 until about the second century after Christ. And that's when the Sons of Seth, Daughters of Cain view was proposed. The traditional rabbinical view, the Jewish view of Genesis 6, was unanimously the angel view. To them, there was no other way to look at it. That's just what happened. And we mentioned the Septuagint earlier, That would also fit under this historical category. They took the angel view. We also have the writings of a host of the early church fathers, including Philo of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Tertullian, among others, who all held to the angel view of Genesis 6. And Flavius Josephus, he was a Jewish historian who lived in the first century after Christ, Josephus made mention of the giants and how they came to be on a couple of different occasions in his Antiquities of the Jews. And I've got it on my computer. I actually brought my hard copy of Josephus this morning, and it's over on top of the bookshelf. It's a blue book. I've put some tabs in it for you to thumb through if you're interested. In his Antiquities of the Jews, book one, chapter three, Josephus simultaneously writes against the Sethite view and for the angel view. And this is what he says. Now this posterity of Seth continued to esteem God as the Lord of the universe and to have an entire regard to virtue for seven generations. But in process of time, they were perverted and forsook the practices of their forefathers and did neither pay those honors to God which were appointed to them, nor had they any concern to do justice towards men. But for what degree of zeal they had formerly shown for virtue, they now showed by their actions a double degree of wickedness. Thereby, they made God to be their enemy. For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians call giants. There's three big things going on here. First, the line of Seth eventually turned away from God. And I want to make clear, Josephus, this is not scriptural. This is historical. He was a historian. So we don't take this as scripture from God, but it is a good representation of history. The line of Seth turned away from God. Two, angels mated with human women. And he says that expressly. Three, the Greeks called them giants. And that seems to tie these Nephilim in with the titans of Greek mythology. And they were demigods. Those titans were half man, half god. And we see the heroes in Greek mythology like Hercules, Demigod, huge, strong man. Really, really interesting to look at these mythologies. And we've got another little bit on that in a second. Still in Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, book five, chapter two now, Josephus makes reference to the race of giants. He says, for which reason they removed their camp to Hebron. Hebron, by the way, is Bashan. It's the same area. So we're talking about the land of Bashan. They removed their camp to Hebron, and when they had taken it, they slew all the inhabitants. There were till then left the race of giants, who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this very day unlike to any creditable relations of other men. The land of Hebron was Bashan, and he said that the giants had very large bodies, of course, and their faces looked very different from other men. They were grotesque. They were surprising to the sight. it would catch you off guard if you looked at them, and they were terrible to the hearing. They were loud and obnoxious. And if you look at different references to the giants in history, that fits. They were scary, they were big, and they were loud. And stinky, actually. <laughs> now, the historian Andrew Thomas remarked that mythology is thought fossils depicting the story of vanished cultures in symbols and allegories. You know, And that's an interesting way to look at it. When we look at mythology, obviously, it's not true. that's in the name, mythology. But there may be remnants of it that have a ring of truth. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and study mythology. Don't mistake me. But we do see these stories of giants, of deities coming down and procreating with humans all across different cultures. And if you look at these diverse cultures around the world, you'll find that most of them actually include a flood story and some kind of race of giants, whether that be the demigods, the heroes of Greek mythology, like Hercules, or a rival race that was of great stature, like the Native Americans. The Greek and Roman pantheon are obviously rife with these illusions, but we also find them in Hindu Japanese, Celtic, Scandinavian mythologies, among others. They're also found in European fairy tales. We've all heard Jack the Beanstalk. A cannibalistic giant. You know, this is crazy. And if you've read Beowulf, right? The big Beowulf. I haven't read that one, but I've heard. So. It is interesting to look at at how these memories seem to pervade literature, to pervade the thoughts of people all across the world. And it makes sense from a biblical perspective, because everyone came from Noah, and Noah lived through all of this. When the Tower of Babel event happened and everybody was scattered, they took those memories that they had, getting off of the ark, the flood, everything. And they dispersed across the world. Now, the North American Indians thought that the first race of people were giants. And this is their view. William Cody, you might know him as Buffalo Bill, wrote about an experience that he had in a Pawnee camp. He wrote that one of the Pawnee came into the camp with a bone that his army general pronounced to be the thigh bone of a very large man. When Buffalo Bill asked where such a bone came from, the Indian told him that it was from a race of giants that lived in the area long ago. He went on to tell Cody about the stories handed down by the tribe. And this is what Cody recorded from this Indian. He wrote, These giants denied the existence Of a great spirit. So he caused a rainstorm to come, and the water kept rising higher and higher, so that it drove these proud and conceited giants from the low ground to the hills, and thence to the mountains. But at last, even the mountaintops were submerged, and those mammoth men were all drowned. After the flood had subsided, the great spirit came to the conclusion that he had made man too large and powerful and that he would therefore correct the mistake by creating a race of men of smaller size and less strength. This is the reason, say the Indians, that modern men are small and not like the giants of old. And they claim that this story is a matter of Indian history, which has been handed down among them from time immemorial. Buffalo Bill, writing about these giants that he was told about. Now... I've got a couple of references I'm going to thumb through real quick. Giants in the New World. Large bones in stone graves in Williamson County and White County, Tennessee. Discovered in the early 1800s, the average stature of these giants was seven feet tall. Now, these are the little ones after the flood. Giant skeletons found in the mid-1800s in New York State near Rutland and Rodman. These are all references to different archaeological finds. In 1833, soldiers digging at Lompoc Rancho, California, discovered a male skeleton 12 feet tall. The skeleton was surrounded by carved shells, stone axes, and other artifacts. The skeleton had double rows of upper and lower teeth. Unfortunately, this body was secretly buried because the local Indians became upset about the remains. Large mounds in Illinois were discovered in 1835 to contain huge skeletons, one of which was over eight feet in length with a correspondingly large skull, with many other skeletons measuring at least seven feet tall. A giant skull and vertebrae found in Wisconsin and Kansas City, a giant found off of the California coast in Santa Rosa Island in the 1800s was distinguished by its double rows of teeth. There are these themes that show up over the double rows of teeth, six fingers, six toes. Those are common themes. Giants in Central and South America. This man was so tall that our heads scarcely came up to his waist, and his voice was like that of a bull. Magellan said that. The Explorer. When Sir Francis Drake anchored at the same place in 1578, he didn't see as big a giant, but did report that men well over six feet in height were there. When Commodore Byron visited in 1764, he also found giants there. He later wrote in this log that there were men there of gigantic stature. And it just goes on and on. And all over the world, there are these accounts of giants being found. And I've got a picture for you. We can throw that up. This is called the Irish Giant. In 1876, a fossilized giant of 3.65 meters, we're talking about this guy, that's about 12 feet tall. He's a 12 footer, with six toes on the right foot, arrived in London and was unearthed by Mr. Dyer during a mining operation in County Antrim, Ireland. It was then taken to exhibitions in Dublin, Liverpool, and Manchester. In a December 1895 issue of the British Strand Magazine, this photo was published of the fossil taken at the Northwestern Railway Company's Broad Street Goods Depot. That's a railroad car that he's leaned up against. You can see the the dark rectangle in the background. That's a railroad car. This is a fossilized giant that they found in Ireland and he's resting against that railroad car. This photo was taken in 1876 well before Photoshop. It was printed in magazines and it was later reprinted in 1901 in a book. And so there's no way that this was photoshopped. It was in print before all of that came into being. Now, there are a lot of bogus pictures out there. So when you're looking at this stuff, we have to keep that in mind. There, there is a lot of weird stuff that floats around. A lot of photoshop these days. Um, it's just good to be <laughs> well-grounded when you approach this stuff. If you want to look at this book or Josephus, I'm going to put them over there on top of the bookshelf. I also brought my little Adam's synchronological chart, a little timeline. So if you want to look at the genealogies we talked about, all of that stuff, it's going to be on top of the bookshelf. This is incredible. You need to check out this book before you leave. Um, those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Now, I know that this is weird. You know, but again, I make no apology for what the text says. But if it's your first time to approach this subject, I sympathize with you. And so I want to close this in prayer this morning. Like I said, next week we'll run through this again with less focus on the giants, just yeah. more on the text itself. So, but I wanted to paint this picture for you, kind of solidify some of these more common questions that we hear but let's close in prayer and i'm also going to bless the food so when we go over there we can start digging in please pray with me